0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think uh, we're almost uh, full. This has proved an extremely popular uh, lecture, so we're just filling up the last few seats. Um, and I'd like to welcome Paul Kennedy uh, to the school. I'll say a little bit more about him just in a second, because there are a couple of things I'd like to say about this uh, event first. Uh, you'll see that it's the inaugural lecture for the Philippe Romal Chair in History and international affairs. And that chair uh, has been endowed by Emmanuel Roman, uh, who is uh, co chief executive of GLG, which is a large hedge fund uh, in Mayfair. Uh, and he's done that in honor of his father. And we are very grateful and pleased that uh, Manny Roman is with us uh, this evening. And this uh, endowment has allowed us. Uh, to bring to the school distinguished scholars uh, from elsewhere who will be in the school, not just for a lecture, but actually to teach a course, etc., people whom uh, we would, I think, not otherwise be able to um, have on the strength. And Paul Kennedy is the first of those. I'd also like to mention that this is an inauguration in another sense, too, uh, in that we are setting up something called LSE Ideas which is a new centre for international affairs, diplomacy and strategy. Uh, In fact, this is a slightly previous announcement of the launch because we really aim to have a proper launch of ideas and explain what it's going to be, what it's going to do in January. But the Roman chair will be based in that uh, centre which has in a sense grown out of the Cold War Studies Centre and it will be directed by Uh, Arnie Westad and by Mick Cox and we hope that that will be the start of a more uh, forward involvement by the LSE in uh, diplomatic issues and in international affairs more generally and as a former diplomat myself I'm rather keen on uh, doing this. Now this evening's lecture however uh, is Paul Kennedy's (coughs) inaugural and is, as you will see, about reforming the United Nations, Mission Impossible. Now, the series of films has got to MI3, um, as you will know, so this is, in a sense, MI4. Um, Whether we will have a lecture called MI5 uh, is perhaps a moot point. Um, But this subject matter grows out of uh, Paul's latest book called The Parliament of Man, um, which is about the present and future of the United Nations, um, and which was inspired by some work he did for the UN Secretary General, associated with the 50th anniversary of the UN. Uh, Paul is perhaps best known for Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, uh, his book about ooh, 20 years ago, I guess uh, now. Uh, he is a chair at Yale uh, in real life, as it were, uh, but we're delighted to have him in the school and I welcome him here and we look (coughs) forward to what he has to say. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Howard. Uh, Dear Director, dear Mr. Ronan, colleagues, students of the LSE, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really honored to be with you tonight. I was grateful to the director for his kind introduction now. I am grateful to Professor Arne Vestat for making this possible. I'm grateful to you all for coming. And I do also want to uh, pay a special tribute, of thanks to Mr. Manuel Roma for endowing this new chair. It looks as if it would be an exciting long-term prospect director and... uh It's great to know that it was endowed in the name of his father, Philippe Roman. I come to you tonight to pay tribute, Uh, not in gold or dromedaries or furskins, but uh, academic tribute. First and foremost, I pay tribute to this uh, special department of international history, which has been the most important in its field, that is in my field, for decades after decade. Even when my, I was a graduate student at St. Anthony's in the late 60s, some of you may notice that trying to keep up St. Anthony's I'd put its tie on, um, <laughs> since I don't yet have an LSE tie. Um, where, I w- where I was there with H.P. Taylor, Trevor Roper, Bullock, Gallagher, Fieldhouse, one could only look with uh, respect at the LSE and then creep into its famous weekly international history seminar held at the Institute of Historical Research. Uh, Secondly, I want to pay tribute to the donors of academic positions and to the outside supporters of academic programs. Tonight certainly to Mr. Romain, but also more generally it's, to me it's very easy to understand why individuals may wish to donate funds to the study of the environment or stem research or cancer research it's the more remarkable when support comes to the liberal arts the classics and to history it suggests a uh, donor of some vision of things other than the practical uh, it makes a difference in fact of course I would not be standing before you tonight as the Dilworth Professor of History at Yale had not a group of benefactors from Yale wished to honor one of their colleagues, J. Richardson Dilworth, who was a Philadelphia businessman, lawyer, philanthropist, and public figure. Somebody who, incidentally, had a passionate, really, really deep interest in history. Uh, finally, and uh, now I come to the topic of this evening's lecture, I want to pay tribute to one of the greatest luminaries of the National History Department, uh, Sir Charles Webster, the first incumbent of the Stevenson Chair. There he is. I, I am grateful to those here who uh, sometime late last night scurried into the basement in the archives and found a photograph of Charles Webster I found it, we found it possible to do it, whether it was Wikipedia or Google or whatever. So we, we had a last-minute creed de coeur. Can you find us the necessary photograph? It's actually, uh, Director, uncanny to me how frequently I've been bumping into Webster of late. I don't mean his ghost, but, uh, but his, his literary imprint. I and my Yale colleagues, uh, John Gaddis and Charles Hill, use Webster's classic The Foreign Policy of Castlereagh as a key text in our jointly taught course on grand strategy Uh, just as uh, Henry Kissinger revered that book when writing his own study of Metternich, Castlereagh and Talleyrand A World Restored more recently and as I return to writing about the Second World War including the Air War I'm struck by the Increasing indebtedness I have to Webster's final great writing project of the 1950s, which was the four-volume official history, The Strategic Bombing Campaign Against Germany, co-authored with Noble Franklin, a magnificent critical work which Bomber Command very much disliked. Um, You can guess why. But it is not the Webster of Castlereagh or the Webster of Bomber Command that brings me to pay tribute to the first Stevenson professor tonight and therefore to the department which he turned into such distinction. It is the Webster of his unique middle period, his time as historical advisor to the Foreign Office that intrigues me, compels my admiration and actually evokes my envy. It is in particular the Webster who participated, not marginally, but much more centrally, in the British government's formulation of policy regarding the creation of the United Nations. That's what intrigues me and causes me to doff my hat. Webster was, to borrow Dean Acheson's uh, phrase, present at the creation. So it's this middle period where he's working at the Foreign Office that will allow me to talk about him with reference to the school and the department but then move on to my talk about reforming the United Nations Uh, Webster's boss, if that is the right word was the formidable Gladwin Jeb, the later Lord Gladwin both Gladwin and Webster had witnessed with shame the collapse of the League of Nations in the 1930s Webster was incidentally a committed member of the League of Nations Union Gladwin was now, and I'm talking about 1943, in charge of a foreign office department responsible for rebuilding the post-war order, including international organization. So I guess it was hardly surprising that to have the world's expert on the rebuilding of the world order after the Napoleonic Wars, and also no mean expert on the Treaty of Versailles and how it came about, this was viewed by Gladwin as a great boon here was a resource he could exploit and did exploit. The LSE saves the world, so to speak. Um, Now, why do I spend so much time on these two historical figures when I talk tonight is about the United Nations, its present condition, and the possibility of reforming the World Organization. My reply, ladies and gentlemen, is the historian's reply. That you cannot appreciate the possibility of... And the constraints upon UN reform today, unless you understand why the world body was constructed the way it was. Webster then is not just some distinguished, if distant, international historian. I see him as a lens or a prism through which we may better comprehend today's rather curious international structures, the UN in particular. In other words, uh, Webster and Jeb were part of the caravan of history. They studied history, they used history, they contributed to history, most especially in two singular ways. The first is that they were actually there when things happened, especially Jeb, of course, who was soon to become Britain's permanent representative to the UN, Even more importantly, they were key figures in that inner circle of Anglo-American bureaucrats, diplomats, historians and other experts who hammered out the critical post-war order at those conferences, at uh, Dumbarton Oaks and also in the economic sphere at Bretton Woods. Uh, As you may guess, uh, my focus tonight is primarily directed to the international security dimensions of the world order, not to the international financial architecture that would uh, result in the creation of the IMF and the World Bank, later the GATT, and then the WTO much more recently. But it would be silly not to recognize that these twin rebuilding projects, rebuilding security and rebuilding prosperity, marched hand in hand those two structures the security structure and the international financial architecture are now over 60 years old think about that UN's already had a life shelf life shall I say uh, three times longer than that of of the League of Nations to explain though why the UN is the way it is to a frustrated Indian or Brazilian diplomat today and I spent most of the 1990s after doing our report on the long term future of the UN, trying to explain why the UN is the way today and why Brazil and India had their position in it, which they thought inferior, uh, is difficult. It would be like the equivalent of explaining to a frustrated Bulgarian or Serbian nationalist in say eighteen seventy five why the concert of Europe was the way it was because it was put together that way 60 years earlier and a frustrated Bulgarian would probably think that was not an adequate answer Uh, just as I fear the Indians and Brazilians don't think my reply to them is adequate but I'm going to try and attempt the way I explain it to them uh, with the leisure of of having a a captive audience we've locked all the doors Uh, you can't get out until I get to the very end webster jeb their american counterparts were some of the free french participants were also historical in that they used history to guide their ideas about a new world order. now what do i mean by that? i mean that if you look at their notes and minutes between one thousand nine hundred and forty three and one thousand nine hundred and forty five especially those in the wonderful series of fo three seven one in the public record office i prefer the proper name rather than the national archives uh, you begin to understand and understand with empathy why the policy makers of that time acted the way they did and why they made the recommendations that they did so let's go and be historical for quite a bit of this Uh, to begin with they had been shocked, really shocked by the catastrophic deterioration of liberal open society and liberal norms uh, in their own time, the 1930s. In the time when they were not so senior as to influence policy, but something that they were very close to and witnessed, to see the league system shattered, to see aggression after aggression. So, the following three slides are just part of Kennedy's show and tell, uh, but they are, for, and they are for graphic effect, but I think you, well, when you see them, understand the point I'm getting at. Uh, first, the Japanese challenge to the League by its move into Manchuria in 31. Um, later on, I, I've skipped the Ethiopian crisis of 35. Later on, the, uh, Anschluss with Austria. And at the same time as the security structures are crumbling, then the economic structures, precariously attempted to be put in place in 1919 to 23 are also falling down so then what were the lessons that Professor Webster and Under Secretary Gladwin Jebb took from the sorry events of the 1930s uh, Auden's dull dishonest decade if you remember that they were lessons that to summarise related to structural balances or imbalances in the international system. In other words they were not particularly interested in asking questions about say the evils of Nazi ideology but much more about why the post 1919 international order had failed to provide peace and security. In that sense again they acted in parallel to Keynes Harry Dexter White and the Anglo-American Treasury planners who were proposing structures, the Bretton Woods system that would prevent any further collapse of the international financial system these two teams are working together one on the finance, one on security but as I think we all know military security and economic security go hand in hand rebuilding therefore was to occur in both fields what I'm going to do now is to summarize the vast documentation in the Foreign Office and State Department planning files by establishing a logic chain of four related points. Now, no single document, and even in a PRO, puts it together like this, but I feel it's a fair summary of the mental world, the mental universe of people like Jeb and Webster as they reflected on the failure of the League. So what are the four points in the logic chain? The first conclusion they drew, and they make this rather clear, is that because of the structure of the international distribution of power, which was there, it was a reality, because of the structure of the international distribution of power, small nations were inherently consumers of security. That's a word they use. They were consumers of security. Why? This was not a moral defect. If there's anybody here from Belgium and Poland or whatever, we're not talking about moral defects. Um, But this was in the nature of things because of this distribution of, uneven distribution of power. If a small country like Belgium or the Baltic states were threatened by a large aggressive neighbor, they could not secure themselves they needed to get that security from elsewhere it followed then or at least it followed in the minds of the logic chain that the large powers uh, at least the peace loving larger powers were the providers of security the small ones were the consumers the larger ones had to be the providers of security and the system had collapsed in the 1930s because certain large nations the USA, the British Empire, France had either been unwilling to play that role or been too demilitarized and felt too demilitarized to play that role but now with the Second World War reaching its zenith with the Grand Alliance deploying millions of troops tens of thousands of aircraft and thousands of warships it was clear once again who the heavy hitters were And in the future, they would also carry the heaviest burdens for the preservation of international security, either by deterring aggression to begin with or by defeating a transgressor or aggressor, if such a repetition of, say, the Anschluss would take place. Secondly, and this really hit me hard when I saw these documents about ten years ago, as a surprise to me there was concern in the British and French documents that at some time in the future Germany and Japan might rise again and resume their path of aggression. Now this may seem very curious to us nowadays given what we know of the history of Germany and Japan since 1945 Allied planners by 43-44 were assuming, felt they could assume that the grand alliance would prevail in the end although their two foes were showing enormous fighting capacity remember they're drafting these documents uh, before the US has even got to the Marianas uh, just after the D-Day landings before Battle of the Bulge or anything else like that while the Red Army is still a long way from Berlin and they were impressed by the fighting capacity and the industrial power, especially of Germany they had in their plans prepared, of course already another group of people was preparing for the occupation and demilitarization of their foes when they were defeated but they remembered I think Jeb all too clearly they remembered that Japan had invaded Manchuria only 12 years after Versailles and that hitler came to power only 14 years after versailles and if as many in the west believed there was something inherently aggressive in the german and japanese character and remember this is a time when ajp taylor is just circulating the drafts of his book the course of german history which says you know it's it's inevitable for germany to go beating up on its neighbors as it is for the water in a river eventually to get to the sea that's how he opens the book Um, well if that was so, if it was something inherently aggressive and because you didn't want to be in occupation forever what might they be up to in say 1965 it would only be 20 years after the war and who would be called upon to stop them and the answer was clear this explains a number of things about the charter that may puzzle us it explains that rather elaborate section in the articles 45 to 47 of the charter which deal with the establishment of a military staff committee a sort of latter day combined chiefs of staff this body to be at the service of the security council we are taking out of a wartime experience the idea of an advisory military body and it's still there in the charter It uh, also explains, uh, which these things have not been published so much, the extensive plans for establishing UN military, naval, and especially air bases after the war to be ready to receive forces from the big powers. Wilhelmshaven, Naples, Yokohama were at the top of this quite extensive list. Imagine it thinking that there would be UN bases across the globe. Now, of course, the swift onset of the Cold War also froze the workings of the military staff committee. By about 1948, the the military men of each side, including the Soviets, of course, uh, decided that that there was not much practical point uh, and told the political figures that plainly. Uh, It was therefore defunct within a couple of years of uh, the charter being signed. But it's worth noting that the committee was never formally abolished and that even today the military members, usually the military attaches still have a very brief meeting in New York from time to time and then they go after their day's business or they go and have a drink at the club. Um, But the idea that you had three whole parts of the charter dealing with the powers and the role of the military staff committee which would service the security council, and particularly service, the permanent five is interesting. So the third point in the logic chain will probably be coming obvious to you now. If the large peace loving powers were to be the heavy hitters, if they would bear the brunt of any future conflicts then they were entitled to a special place in the new international security structure they would accept the responsibilities but they would claim a special place as well they would be given special privileges there's no doubt about that and they would be made in a different category another lesson was that there would be no going back to the league system where all member states large and small were on the same footing Uh, Great Britain in particular was going to have no more of say A small Scandinavian state or a small Latin American state saying we have to act vigorously against Mussolini and his aggression and we have to send a big fleet into the Mediterranean because the British knew that the countries in question didn't have any ships at all. It would be the Royal Navy who had to do it. So this time they were going to privilege those who would carry the burden of collective security. So the big five, the US, Britain, USSR, France, later China and they're mentioned in the charter specifically they would sit at high table they would have a permanent seat at high table and their names, as I said, specified in the charter not, not just once and they would have a controlling negative vote on all matters regarding war and peace the security council itself, the high table would be given extraordinary powers, which every nation signing the Charter actually pledges to respect. It pledges to obey the Security Council when Security Council mandated resolutions come along. Nations were to do pretty much anything that the Security Council requested them to do, including transit rights. Even if you were a small country, you had to grant transit rights. There was (coughs) one-fourth utterly compelling point compelling to the British especially or compelling to the British at least they absolutely had to keep the big elephants inside the circus tent to these planners the key weakness of the league was that so many large nations had been on the outside or got out of the tent the US Congress repudiated the covenant so America was never a member perhaps a fatal blow. The Soviet Union was never in except in a few years in the late 1930s following which it was expelled for the invasion of Finland in the Winter War. The only decisive action that the League of Nations took was to expel the Soviet Union in 1940. Uh, Taylor somewhere in another one of his weird offside says perhaps what they wanted to do remember they're already in the war with Germany perhaps what they wanted to do was to go to war with Germany and the USSR simultaneously Japan left after Manchuria after the Lytton Report Italy left after Abyssinia Hitler quickly pulled Germany out after he seized power this only left among the great powers a weak and badly demoralized France and a heavily overstretched British Empire. And Whitehall was determined that that should never happen again. In particular, therefore, the USA and USSR simply had to be tempted into full membership of the new security organization, despite both of them having very strong fears that that could infringe their sovereignty. It's impossible to overstress how much the British monitored American isolationist sentiments during the war itself they had some of our greatest array of scholars in Chicago and Indianapolis and down in the south just reporting on what a senator said when he went back home to his own state reporting on what the uh, Chicago Tribune was saying Uh, and how much also they worried about Stalin's paranoia and future actions those two emerging superpowers were quite capable of standing alone. Actually, the only countries that could stand alone by the end of a war, I suppose. And the thought of this scared the British. Ways had to be found. Language had to be found to persuade them to stay in. Actually, to get them to come in in the first place. You had to, you had to persuade them. So the draftees of the UN Charter had to compromise between the ideals so wonderfully outlined in the preamble, that uh, wonderful preamble drafted by the Librarian of Congress in the summer and the spring of 1945, between the, the compromise between the ideals and the harsh realities of great power politics. The system had to be robust enough to survive angry, angry differences of opinion, but without a large elephant storming out of a tent. And talking of angry, angry differences, uh, I thought I would introduce that wonderful photograph my the research assistant at uh, Penguin found for us just last year, uh, which is a great quarrel in the middle of a Korean War. It's not the very beginning. Great quarrel on the... Uh, on the Security Council, but it's about the Korean War. On the left hand side, you see Vishinsky in fine form uh, denouncing the capitalist West. On the left is the American permanent representative Henry Cabot Lodge II, wishing he was having his first dry martini of the day <laughs> somewhere else other than uh, in the Security Council. And who is the very sad guy in the middle? <laughs> It is our old pal, Gladwin Jebb, still the British permanent representative. And we can guess what Gladwin was thinking. I think some of you know because I almost end my first chapter of my book uh, with this quote from Gladwin. He he flies back home from a San Francisco meeting uh, where he listened to terrific speeches by all the political leaders, including actually a really moving one by Truman, one of Truman's best speeches, to the delegates at San Francisco and they, they'd all talked about the new world and the new things they could do and how they'd passed the watershed and Gladwin notes in his diaries as he's flying back well, we tried our best and we've probably done some good but I think we have aimed too high for this wicked, wicked world of ours so you can imagine Gladwin was. <laughs> his head between his hands they're saying I told him so I told him, I told him, I told him Um, but still they're in the tent they're not outside the tent hence then and for the diplomatic and legal historians uh, this may be of, of, of particular interest hence the very special and carefully crafted language of the Charter designed to assuage the suspicions of Moscow and Washington designed to assuage the suspicions of Molotov and of isolationist Senator Vandenberg so it's actually part three which I call your attention to When I teach a course on international organizations and trends at at, Yale, I'm actually teaching one now, I tell them that when they go off to their discussion sections, they they should talk about the veto and they should uh, check uh, what the charter says about the veto powers. And when I see them the next week, we say, well, Professor Kennedy, we burn through the blasted charter all the time, back and forward, word check, spell check. The word veto is not in the Charter. What it is, is hidden away in uh, part three here. This, was, this comes from uh, cha- uh, part five, or chapter five of the uh, Charter. Everybody jumps ahead to chapter six, which is on the peaceful settlement of resolutions by the Security Council, or chapter seven, which is on the enforcement powers. They never look at chapter five which is on the procedures. And every expert, especially directors of LSE and chairman of departments, know that if you control the knowledge about what the process is, Roberts rules or whatever way you do your parliamentary procedures, and if you're there beginning to draft the language... This is why I've, for a number of occasions, I've agreed to be the secretary of an interdepartmental committee because the secretary drafts the language. At least you have a first crack at it. And you have a chance to devise words which hide more offensive words. So this was about procedures. Uh, In other words, the procedural matters, which are in part two here, or just like saying, well, we'll meet every week on Tuesday morning. That's a procedural matter, 9 o'clock. Then it says all other matters made by, well, it has to be a majority of 9 out of the 16, oh, it's 9 out of the 15. Um, and, then it, and then Gladwin, I'm sure it's Gladwin, slipped in, including the concurring votes of the permanent members. That's a veto disguised there, you have to have the concurrence of the five permanent members so the British and the Americans put this forward, circulated to the other delegates remember they're in San Francisco from April through to June in 45 and the other delegates are trying to get a prize this open what the hell does it mean and there's a wonderful story of the frustrated Mexican ambassador going to Vizinski and saying but but Ambassador Vyshinsky, how, how do we know when it's a procedural matter rather than another matter and Vyshynski looked at him as if he was stupid and said we will tell you <laughs> we will tell you that was the power and then uh, to uh, so that uh, before then when the, the, Russia, the Soviets and the Americans had expressed worry that they would be trapped the British would come along and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, just look at Article 27, Part 3, let's pass it carefully, and that's your control mechanism. Uh, Then they also inserted the following, uh, now very much quoted because of the difficulty of getting intervention in Darfur and elsewhere, but it's Article 2, uh, Section 7, Uh, not interfering in matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state there is a caveat to this; there is a modifier as you see at the bottom after the semicolon but generally speaking states which don't want interference either in their own affairs or affairs of their their allies or buddies just invoke the first part prior to the semicolon so no interference in it Um, in internal affairs uh, China has used this repeatedly because of its neuralgia about Tibet and other things like that uh, it's also invoked by many dubious regimes uh, Sudan itself Iran itself saying you can't interfere in our in- internal affairs, whatever happens uh, what has this meant, what does this mean for international security especially in the realms of peacekeeping and peace enforcement it means and I guess uh, the drafters knew it would mean this that there was one set of rules for the big guys and a different set of rules for the others so first uh, thing you have to realize is you don't mess with a matter that one of the permanent five declare to be important to them don't try to get Chechnya or Tibet into a Security Council resolution. The veto will be used. Or sufficient hints will be dropped that the veto will be used. That the other permanent members tone down the language. If you look at the record of, of the P5 and which of them have used the veto most or least and in what circumstances, you'll find that the People's Republic of China uh, has used it less than the other four members. Uh, The Chinese are just superb poker players. God, I'd hate to play poker with some of their professional diplomats. What they do is they walk down the corridor with the perm reps of France, Russia, etc., and say, you know, I've just heard from my superiors in Beijing that we're we're very unhappy, Mr. Ambassador, with the language used in the draft you circulated yesterday afternoon. And if they're professional diplomats, they know exactly what China is saying. If China is very unhappy, you've got to go back and look at that language again. So you can't do anything where a big power says this is an interest. Get back to Vyshinsky. We will tell you when it is an interest. Secondly, it means that despite all the cases of international conflict, civil wars and failed states, uh, again, there's a discrimination effect here. And I'm going to just put out three slides to show you what I mean. The story on each of them is pretty familiar to you, I believe. Rwanda in 1994, uh, Srebrenica, ethnic cleansing, in 1995 um, Sierra Leone, end of the mission the final UN forces uh, Indian platoon I think there are going home Uh, so in the first of these conflicts UN peacekeepers were limited to an observation force of only 200 blue helmets they were observers to that conflict what had happened was that the Mogadishu cock up just a few months earlier had so frightened the Clinton administration that when the French proposed a force of 5,000 peacekeepers and peace enforcers, the Clinton administration only allowed 200 as observers. In the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans, not only were the great powers honestly divided over what sort of compulsion would be authorised and what sort of agency would be used but Russia repeatedly protected its client Serbia threatening a veto so it took a long time before the big powers of the west came together under the aegis of a NATO operation which is actually allowed that is regional associations can carry out the work of the security council in the third case this one here one of, the fee- one of the P5, uh, Great Britain, asked to lead a multinational force to restore order in Sierra Leone and sent in, as the front wing, of course, was purely all British, 2,000 Royal Marine Commandos to drive the gangs out and then steadily the rebuilding and the police work comes and other contingents from West Africa but also from the, the old Commonwealth, which has uh, actually a rather good track record uh, of all the countries involved in sending contingents to peacekeeping and peace enforcement is probably those plus Scandinavian countries like Sweden which has the biggest track record because they're used to being part of a multinational force in wartime it doesn't give them any problems if there's a general of another country uh, in charge of uh, the multinational force because there's always been a general of another country <laughs> in charge apart from the Australian led East Timor operation. Well, Britain asked and proposed it was going to do it, it couldn't tolerate all of the awful photographs of young kids with their hands chopped off by the machete gangsters, and it actually worked rather well. And since the other members of the permanent of the Security Council had no vital interest in Sierra Leone, they agreed. Or they abstained. Uh, Sierra Leone, you might say, was lucky because it was not important enough. That's a horrible irony, but if you look at the decision making process, it's probably close. Can this be changed? Can the negative blocking capacities of five nations in a world body of 192 member states be reduced? Or could some new members more representative of the world of 2007 be put on the Security Council as permanent members? Well, I doubt it. Not unless there's a real sense of urgency a long promised invasion by Martians that will bring the whole of the United Nations together or possibly another hegemonic war where you pick up the pieces and you start again as Jeb and Gladwin were doing at the end of a hegemonic war of 39 to 45 so the final document I'm going to show you ladies and gentlemen helps a bit to explain why this comes right at the end of the UN Charter uh, how do you change a bloody thing if sometime in the future you want to now they the Foreign Office drafters knew they had to build in some form of amendment just like since they modeled quite a bit of the UN Charter on the American Constitution then you had to say well how can you have an amendment to the US Constitution how do you have an amendment or change either taking something out or putting something in to the UN Charter amendments start passing this uh, but bear in mind that the only amendments which have occurred with those in the uh, about 1964, when the sheer swell of new newly independent states in Africa, Asia and the Pacific meant that uh, the original balance in the Security Council of 1945 to 64 was five permanent members and only six two-year rotating members. In 1964, everyone agrees that it should go up to keeping the five, of course, Uh, But the six going up to ten, that's our present arrangement. Ten two year rotating members, each of five of them being elected in and out every second year, and the five permanent members. Why is that? Well, you can see that you've got two hurdles to jump over if you're going to amend the charter. First side, and I don't know which of these, which of these, hurdles is the bigger hurdle is it it the pond fence or is it Beecher's Brook I just don't know what it is but they're high fences to ride at Um, you need to get you need to get two thirds of the members of the General Assembly in agreement of anything changed but at, at this moment I'm talking about changing the membership or anything of the Security Council adding new members for example Now it's two thirds not of the governments it's two thirds of the parliaments the respective constitutional processes by two thirds of the members. In other words uh, perhaps some government may agree to a certain country being admitted to a permanent membership uh, on the Security Council but if the parliament votes against it it doesn't fly. Uh, I'm trying to persuade two-thirds of the parliament who think positively in this world of ours this is, is, as I say, a beaches brook. The second thing is it snuck in once again at the bottom, including all the permanent members of the Security Council. In other words, all five have to approve or at least not disapprove. At a certain stage, it was agreed that if you abstained, That that still fell into, with the concurrence, you were not vetoing, so an abstention meant that whatever was passed, including a UN peacekeeping operation, could go ahead. You may recall that when the Security Council voted in favor of the combined action against Saddam Hussein after the invasion of Kuwait, four of the five... Uh, voted in favour, China abstained, as it normally does in such matters. But that wasn't a blocking thing, it was an abstention. So, this is why reform at the charter level uh, is so difficult. Uh, And why it's so hard to explain, because it also involves politics, Every one of the uh, sort of contender nations who would like to be on high table has regional and other opponents. Whether a threat of a veto, as China has always said, it will veto Jap- Japan getting on the Security Council, or whether it's just a build-up of sufficient support among your friends when you're opposing somebody getting on, sufficient support so you'll never get the two-thirds majority. So, uh, last year, some of you may recall, uh, before the General Assembly meeting, before the opening, and not of this recent one, but the one last year, um, uh, the Gang of Four, uh, so to speak, that is to say, Brazil, India, Japan, and Germany decided they would each support the others' uh, application or contention to get... Uh, a position. So all four of them would try to get on and each of them would try to assemble enough friends who would get put together and make the two-thirds majority. And in fact, what, what happened was the opposite. There were just four coalitions against them. Uh, as I said, uh, Japan hadn't a chance of flying because of Chinese opposition encouraged by most of the other states of Southeast Asia who asked who asked China to veto any Japanese uh, possibility of getting on. Um, Germany had annoyed the Bush White House because of its uh, outspoken criticism of the Gulf War. So uh, Berlin was told no uh, beating about the Bush, that Bush, (laughs) uh, that it it wouldn't get American support. Of course, the Americans told the Japanese that they were... They thought Japan should have a position because the Americans knew that China was going to veto it so it wasn't going to get on in any case but you might as well keep your relationship with Japan on a friendly footing. Uh, Germany was also uh, opposed by in particular the Italians the idea of three European powers being on the Security Council and not Italy is a kind of nightmare in Rome politics Uh, and even when I and my colleague Bruce Russett and a team of scholars who, and commission which produced our 1995 report on the long-term future of the United Nations, called the United Nations in its second half century, when we proposed there should be some additions to uh, the permanent veto members on the Security Council. We didn't name names, but we said it should recognize both financial contributions, that's a code word for Germany and Japan the third and second largest contributors to the budget and regional distribution from uh, the south, that was a code word for Brazil, India possibly South Africa wherever we went even if it was to you know a Saturday afternoon League of Women Voters somewhere in upstate Connecticut the Italian ambassador was right down there in the front row <laughs> it was his mission to track us and make sure the objections were there Uh, more often than not the Pakistan ambassador was there Uh, Pakistan mobilized uh, all of its fellow Muslim states to indicate they would vote against India being on the on the permanent veto council Uh, in Latin America Mexico Venezuela and Argentina in particular were extremely, extremely critical of the notion that Brazil could be regarded as a regional spokes country for them. So the third in line, dogging myself and Bruce Russett all over, was the very, very able Mexican permanent representative to uh, the Security Council. In fact, it was the former Mexican foreign minister, Manuel Teller, He he resigns from the foreign ministry to go to the secure to go to the general assembly to be there to make sure that sufficient blocks are put in the way. I think you can see the way I'm going. There was one other interesting uh, South Africa. If its name ever came up, Nigeria and Egypt contested immediately. There was no such thing as regional solidarity. Uh, the other interesting group were those of independent small states which were self-sufficient, that they didn't need U.S. AID or any sorts of bribes like that, like Singapore, which didn't like the idea of high table existing in any case. And it used to say with some validity, uh, it's bad enough having five of you guys being able to stick, you know, put a stick in the spokes. But 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, we, we are going to oppose that. We're going to oppose any more. 5 is too many. And it actually is worth thinking about. If the existing P5 each have the capacity to paralyze a proposal for action, then if you put it up to 10, you would double the number of chances of not getting the unanimity That you need. Uh, It's very difficult to get five. I I don't think ten would go. So the the Singaporeans didn't talk so much about we're sick of you five already ruling the roost. The Singaporeans said, well, you're just going to make it more complicated, less workable. Uh, So this is why I began with Webster and Jeb. Because I said... At the outset, it helps us see the limitations and the problems in the many proposals, reports, study groups and other op-eds, if you like, on changing the UN Charter. Or at least in any proposal that involves Charter Amendment or tampering with the privileges of the P5. Uh, the idea which floated around sometimes, usually by Italy, that there be a rotating European seat on the, on the Security Council, um, of course it's not going to get past the uh, uh d'Orsay, it's not going to get past the uh, far end of Downing Street either, uh, in any case it would be... What would that mean? Uh, there's a big decision for war and peace, and in a certain six-month period, Luxembourg has the European seat and the veto. So, there's none of the ones about charter amendment seem possible. I hope sometime in the future we might think it sensible to have India, given the size of the country, its economic importance, its long track record in peacekeeping, considered to be on at the moment. It's hostile and mobilizes a lot of developing world hostility to the Security Council because of that. I don't think in the minds of uh, Webster and Jeb, they would have been surprised by much of this. Uh, They thought they were dealing with the art of the possible. Perhaps the biggest surprise to them, when you think about it, would have been that the World Organization still existed at all, 60 years later, after 45 years of Cold War and was doing all the things that currently it is doing. In other words, reforming the UN has, in my opinion, to be more modest and more realistic than those proposals suggested about the time of the UN's 50th anniversary. They should focus, I would suggest, on non charter changes, on making the body more efficient and respected in peacekeeping and nation-building, in getting a really efficient intelligence-gathering apparatus in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, working with NGOs who are usually the first ones to tell you that something is really going bad in Cote d'Ivoire. It's not going to be probably CNN. CNN goes out there when it hears there's something bad. When a a society starts to collapse, when when a state starts to fail... The people who will report in first will be Catholic Relief Services, Norwegian Relief Agency, Medecins Sans Frontier, environmentalists, because they are there on the ground. But how can you get a better system of intelligence gathering so this could get to the Secretary General's office, so he could bring it, give at least a warning out to the Security Council members? How can you make peacekeeping be more efficient? Can you get pre-positioned materials, including field hospitals? Can some more countries follow Canada's lead in actually pre-positioning two battalions of Canadian troops and training them at Fredericton in New Brunswick? So that if the Canadian government agrees to the Secretary-General's request for, I beg your pardon, for assistance, then they can be on the way in 36 hours. This was one lesson that Canadians led by General Dallaire, learned from the lack of preparation for response to the Rwanda-Burundi thing. How can you get better cooperation in the economic and technical fields, in regional plans? In other words, Mr. Director, I think that while, while Jeb was right in saying, saying that uh, perhaps they uh, aim too high, in all of the things included in the purposes of the UN. Um, first of all, they have achieved a lot, including in uh, peacekeeping. There's at least as good a list of successes in peacekeeping as there are setbacks and humiliations. Uh, and it has grown in many other ways, and it can improve. In fact, the list of practical improvements, which, which do not involve charter amendment, is rather long and promising. But I see the sands of time and uh, analyzing those would require a second lecture. Professor Bestat, you try it on me and I'll kill you. (laughs) So I'm going to stop here, grateful for having been invited and still very conscious of the ghostly presence of Sir Charles Webster somewhere in this building. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that absolutely uh, fascinating lecture. Um, I'm I have a particular personal interest in in particularly enjoying the subject of UN reform because it's the one subject I listen to which makes running and managing the LSE's disputatious academics seem quite easy um, by comparison. Um, We've got 20 minutes or so for uh, questions and um, I think I'll go straight to the floor except I would like to begin with just one um, uh, with using the chairman's right uh, we had um, a year or so ago Emil Jones Parry, the Britain's ambassador to the United Nations, to speak on very much the same, uh, same subject, actually, although a, a completely different approach to it. But he articulated the British government's view at that point, uh, which was in favour of extension of uh, members of the Security Council. I believe, I think they were in favour of three, weren't they? I don't, think the, I don't think Japan. But given what you say about the practical impossibility this I mean how do you interpret the British government's view was this just a sort of posturing so that they could say to the people others to Brazil and India and Germany oh well we are in favor but with no realistic expectation of it being achieved so was this just a bad faith policy or did the British government seriously think it was possible
1: I don't know how you know, devious they were in this it was clear Germany wasn't going to get anywhere um and um in some ways, I think they were rather clumsy because they they told uh Japan and i don't know who was it South Africa or some other contender incidentally the, the Pakistan ambassador always went around calling those nations who wanted to get in, calling them the pretender nations, like the great pretender um I think. Probably HMG would have been a lot better served had it said, well, we don't think any of these can fly now. We don't have massive objections, except the practical one that if there's ten of us, it's going to really slow us down. But we think that um, all things considered, and with due respect to the other contenders, uh, it's time for India to be... There and just give an indication that you're not insulting the others by saying that you think that India, with you know a sixth of the population of the world and a large number of other criteria, uh, make m- meets the meets standards by, by any means whatsoever. Uh, but it, it is because of the mechanics that I described that every contender has a number of enemies who will then try to get a coalition against the contender. It's all very well for uh Whitehall and uh. State Department to say, Of course, old boy, we, we'll support you when you know that it's not going to be supported elsewhere it's not going to get the votes. You could, the um, interesting thing was uh, to watch the number counting because so many of the permanent reps of small powers, medium, and large powers but were just trying to, you know, it's like going to Ladbroke's around the corner and trying to figure out the odds for the derby or something like that. You were watching. Shifting odds, shifting numbers. And you could tell that uh, Japan was a 33-to-1 outsider. Uh, India possibly, certainly was the favorite. Uh, and if if the Indian-Chinese relationship warms up a bit more, I think that at least hurdle one, which is uh, with the concurrence of the permanent five, is probably in the bag. Whether the two-thirds of the parliaments is... I'm not, but, uh, but you know, if, let me go on about this because some, some uh, people who watch this process feel uh, disgusted at the manipulation, particularly by big powers of the small powers. Uh, you're trying to buy their votes. You're trying to get their attention. Germany and Japan were promising rather significant increases in uh, bilateral aid to certain poorer countries. There's a wonderful study came out as a Harvard Business School case, uh, case study a couple of years ago which shows the pattern of USAID uh, grants and direct gifts to small countries who happen to have their two years of fame by rotation on the security council and lo and behold aid goes way up to those smaller countries as long as they're on the security council and then it drops right back down again because what you're wanting remember the security council has to have the concurrence of the five but it has to have 9 out of 15 positive votes after the arm twisting before by both sides especially by France and by the US before that decision of the U.S. not to go back to Security Council in March of 2003 I met an ambassador who said, Professor Kennedy, if I had known that being a member of a Security Council as a small Central American nation, if I'd known it was going to be so much pressure and so much bullying uh, we, would have, we would have never done it. I mean when we got we, we, when we got in as part of the regional hmm. Buggins uh, chair business, when we got in, everyone in the country celebrated. You know, that El Salvador, Costa Rica, whoever it was, was in the Security Council. Now, we've learned our lesson and we're telling other small countries, don't go in.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, question right up at the top. I'm sort of betting you're not Japanese. Um, <laughs> Could you give your name first? Uh, I'm a student of human rights. I'm from Pakistan. Sir, my question, uh, thank you for your impartial reading of the history. Sir, I want to ask that, as you mentioned that the big powers absence from the League of Nations led to its destruction, is the mission impossible because of the P5s not taking Much in the like, I can say, the Americans' presence in the Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court and its signing and unsigning. Is the mission impossible Of because of these UN, because of the big powers, political interests, and the big table where they are sitting? They are getting the resolutions on Iraq and Iran very quickly, but when it comes to the human rights, like Burma and other issues, they are saying we are powerless and, we are, and the Human Rights Council is not working. Thanks.
1: Uh, well, you're certainly right to, to point to and to repeat uh, what I said about the, the egoistic nature of all of the five. Uh, I, you know, my guess was, this, the, although it wasn't said plainly in the charter, this was the assumption of those who drafted the original document. Uh, In other words, if you look at the charter and and read it through a a few times, you realize it's saying, you know, the, the human community, once we get out of this war, can pretty well do anything it desires collectively to do. But if some of the big guys are not wanting that to happen, then you drop down and down to lowest common denominator. Hence my remark, which wasn't meant to be funny that Sierra Leone got assistance because it wasn't regarded as strategically important or politically important. If there were a change of incumbent in the White House then you might see the United States having a different set of policies and joining in more in a multilateralist position. Uh, But it's not just the United States, I mean China and Russia in particular have extraordinarily unilateralist cherry-picking positions. I like This bit, which is being proposed, but I don't like that bit. And changes of regime, changes of government, complicate things enormously. All of the peacekeeping missions of the early 1990s, where we went from uh, nine existing UN peacekeeping missions with only 8,000 blue helmets in the field, that was 1990. By 1993, we had 19 peacekeeping missions with 80,000 blue helmets in the field because the Russians had stopped using the veto and because China was so interested in trade that it only abstained. Now with uh, hardening of the lines in Moscow, then there's much more of a threat to veto like on Kosovo and elsewhere. So I think the original uh, creators of this try to devise a document that's flexible enough recognizing that at the end of the day big powers would act as in a way that big powers do I'm afraid to say and that goes for attitudes towards Kyoto Protocol or the Human Rights Commission
0: Uh, yeah take one right down the front if I am also a student in human rights and I wonder from a humanitarian perspective if you could talk about the utility of the responsibility to protect as I'm sure you know it was um, included in the world outcome summit in 2005 and many humanitarian advocates tried to use the responsibility to protect to address issues in of, of civilian protection in places like Uganda and Sudan and I wonder what you think about its utility now in addressing Sudan and Burma and other situations.
1: Uh, the question refers to a movement which, uh, an idea which got underway in the middle of the 90s, especially in the late 90s, picked up uh, very much by Kofi Annan, who wrote about it in, in his last report, uh, called the responsibility to protect. Uh, yes, the Charter is signed by governments. Yes, the United Nations is a club of Originally 50 governments, now 192 governments, despite the language of the preamble. And yes, it was conceived of as trying to head off one aggressor government attacking across a border its neighbor. What, what happens if the government is attacking its own people, is carrying out genocides within? Now, uh, one answer to that in uh, the international lawyers would be well, just two and a half years after signing the charter um, the nations came together and agreed to and signed uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, which in some ways is a challenge to the state-centered nation state-centered notion and structure of, of the charter so you're left with international NGOs, international human rights lawyers, a goodly number of countries, wanting to appeal either to US to the UN Charter or the Universal Declaration to get action taken within countries, and you're getting China and Sudan, etc. appealing to you know, no interference in the domestic uh, affairs. Now, in the midst of this, Kofi, who had come into the UN saying he was going to be the Secretary General especially for Africa because Africa was falling off the face of the earth while East Asia and even South Asia were developing. He did like this originally Canadian idea of the responsibility to protect. He put it it into his documents. But at the end of the day, you're left with this conundrum that uh, that It's governments who have to do it. And if certain governments just object to it and vote against it or they get support of any one of the P5 it's extremely difficult to get it done. The time might come when certain of the West European nations just lose their patience. If they could find one or two African countries which would be willing to get away from the neo-colonial attitudes of the 1950s and say yes this is a disgrace, we will help you and we will give you forward landing rights. Then you might actually go ahead, the Chinese would kick up a rumpus and the Sudanese government would have a fit which sounds to me one of the most wonderful things I could ever imagine. Um, but, but here's a language which says the community is has to go and protect and there's the other language which says this is a contract between governments signed in San Francisco in June 1945
0: tough Uh, yeah a very (coughs) determined hand which gets you a question hello
1: okay um. (coughs) wait i sort of like to make a distinction between, like, the high politics and low politics, where the UN has been very successful in low politics, but it often seems to be locked up in matters relating to high politics and international security. Yet at the same time, I think there's a great perceived need among uh, current nations to deal with a lot of humanitarian responses in a timely manner, like right now, dafar is going on previous cases that have been the Balkans, where they eventually went in with uh, NATO, Rwanda, that type of thing. Do you think there's a danger or perhaps even a good sign towards um, many Western nations moving to bypass
0: the UN if it does not seem to be able to respond in a quick quick manner to these issues that many member states and populations think really need to be responded to? Thanks.
1: Let's see if I can, uh, thank you. Uh, let's see if I can uh, deconstruct that uh, a little. Um, I think that there is a distinction between the high politics of the UN which has got the drama of uh, the annual General Assembly meetings where the US gets denounced by Chavez or it gets uh, gets, um, uh, anger over whether uh, Kosovo would become uh, independent or not and then there is the steady work of a vast amount of UN agencies including of course all the parts of the UN which we don't even think of as being parts of the UN family because they are the technical agencies. I I couldn't have flown across the Atlantic overnight if it hadn't been for the international air traffic arrangements and and, and that authority you couldn't do much at sea without the International Maritime Organization. You now have American companies suddenly realizing that world intellectual property rights are something absolutely critical for them. So there's an awful lot going on and in many cases um, it would go on regardless of the high politics and does go on regardless of the high politics. We do need an international telecommunications union. Um, What happens though when you move away from the purely technical or merely technical to the lower, softer agenda items, whether it's environment, refugee, rebuilding, uh, assisting a state to carry out for the first time an impartial general election after a civil war is over. There, I think, I see a lot of promise, which is why I concluded, I, I admit I just put it in in the last two paragraphs, and promised Professor West that I would talk about it when I uh, am next here, um, that it's, it's actually the practical things on the ground where the UN works best, and it works best when it reaches out and integrates with the NGOs, uh, with, the, uh, with some technical bodies, with uh, aid agencies, uh, with the churches. Uh, so I see a lot of hope there and a lot of activity there. And it therefore means when I talk to different audiences, I realize that um, different people have different United Nations in their mind. Uh, The reason why my book The Parliament of Man has in its middle section six chapters is it's telling six different tales from 1945 to the present. Uh, There's one chapter on the Security Council. There's one chapter on peacekeeping and war making. That's usually where senators and congressmen think it's all about. Uh, There's one chapter on economic agendas north and south. That's where the south gets very, very anxious. There's one chapter on the softer agendas, which aren't soft at all. They're incredibly important. Uh, Environmental issues, women's health issues, children's issues. um, And there's another chapter separately on the evolution of international human rights. Uh, But when I talk to international lawyers, it's it's the international human rights which is their UN. If I talk to a finance minister... From a, a state in West Africa it's the fact that the World Bank came in last month and told them to do things which the UNDP visit months before said that you shouldn't do and I'm not kidding this is, this is true, this is what I meant when I said we need to have better integration and coordination of the, of the economic and, and development and trade issues many people are going around the UN uh, because they see that at the center, it's over-politicized. Uh, it's very hard to get anything done in the over-politicized Human Rights Commission. It doesn't stop you trying to do something on human rights in a particular part of the globe. Uh, one interesting thought, though, which I didn't mention uh, because I just thought I, I did want to keep to the 7.30 ending... Um, there's other ways of going around the UN which you might be interested in which is precisely in the peacekeeping and peace enforcement areas. What I mean by that was uh, when there was this plethora of new peacekeeping operations in the first three years of the 90s uh, the Secretary General's office sat down and produced a document which was meant to be a blueprint it was called an Agenda for Peace and it calibrated, you know, you'd start off first with sending the Secretary General's special representative, diplomatic intervention. If people wouldn't agree, you, or one side wouldn't agree, you might think of economic sanctions. At a certain stage, you might send in peace enforcement. If nasty guys started attacking the lightly armed neutral peacekeepers, you go to, uh, sorry, peacekeeping, and then you go to peace enforcement. Heavier and heavier. But it all seemed to be in a continuum and what happened was that uh, the disasters, the triple disasters of Mogadishu uh, Srebrenica and Kosovo and uh, Rwanda Burundi then caused a number of people to say well it's extremely hard to have a UN operation we have genuine donor fatigue uh, Sweden who had put battalions in the field for just 40 years has hardly done much in the way of UN operations in the past eight years uh, they say we've we 've done enough ditto some Central American or south American states we've got donor fatigue. Does that mean we leave the disaster to unfold and no no it doesn't so they start looking at the charter again uh, regional organizations, a group of countries can put themselves together and say to the uh, because they're the most interested in what goes on in East Timor they go and get a security council sign off that they'll try to do something uh, individually led initiatives like Britain in uh, Sierra Leone uh, off- offloading it if you like to regional military organizations This astonishing transformation of NATO uh, both in the Balkans and in Afghanistan So the template or the standard measure of doing it, which was any agenda for peace, got tossed out the window when you saw that almost every case is sui generis. And now the responsibility of the Secretary General and Department of Peacekeeping Operations is to say which of the various tools in our not very large toolkit do we have to suggest to the Security Council might be deployed for this crisis, whether it's a trans-border crisis or not, so it's not just that independent bodies uh, independent foundations um, national disaster relief organizations, a Norwegian relief uh, agency, it's not just that they are not waiting for the UN to do something, it's that people are thinking of how do you do this in another way or a better way so uh, this is where I, you know, it seems to me if you are going to be paralyzed at the top because it's politicized, it doesn't stop you pursuing some of the many purposes of the UN Charter by saying, well, how do intelligent women and men figure a way to get at this particular problem?
0: We're, we're almost out of time. I'm going to take um, one more uh, question, Maybe and ahead. I think I probably ought to take the woman at the back there with the pen
1: lady with the pen. Thank you. Uh,
0: my name is sikrun I'm a journalist. Um, I guess Sir Gladwin was a fair, pay, fair play Brit, but um, the question of corruption has been hovering over the United Nations for the last few years. I was just wondering um, how permeated do you think that the United Nations is by the culture of corruption and uh, how big a problem is it in terms of reforming uh, the United Nations?
1: Well, um, there's no doubt at all that the uh, oil food scandal was a real scandal and there was an awful lot of corruption in it. Uh, A lot of it, uh, I'm not not defending this, I think uh, every Secretary General has come in and said, one of the things I'm going to do is management reforms, better personnel, better qualifications, uh, better lines of authority, avoiding entangled webs, with private interests and has found how difficult it is. It, it's partly to do with something that uh, if you propose change makes others uneasy. That is to say it's got to do with something called uh, proportionate regional representation. The language is used in the charter. Uh, once you've Once the big five have got what they want, they then say in the other bodies there can be elections, there can be a rotating six-month president of the Human Rights Commission, there can be a regional representation, not just on the uh, bodies, not not just on the the councils and commissions, but also there ought to be proportionate regional representation in the permanent secretariat. And they, many countries, place that requirement above the clear language of the council which states that the member underneath the secretary general who is the number one international civil servant all others who come to work for the secretariat have to be of the highest impeccable standards. No links back to their country. No links to their government. They do not have to take actions thinking that they are Brazilian or French they have to become international civil servants this is an an ethos which is very very uh, widely disregarded in in fact in many sad cases what happens is a government trying to get rid of an unpopular foreign secretary will bump the guy out so he has a nice sinecure job in Geneva or elsewhere in many cases you come from a culture of corruption You can just look at that wonderful Berlin-based organization Transparency Inc.'s corruption index of the countries in the world measured by their lack of or intensity, propensity to index to corruption and you see there's quite a big overlap between people, bureaucrats who are fingered for corruption, who have come from a society and a governing structure and governing elites, who just thought corruption was part of a natural order of society. Two of the biggest operators in the Food for Oil were ex KGB officers who from Russia, of course, who were now in another form of making money on the side. Uh, and therefore when the Secretary General says, Oh my goodness, we've we'll got a new accountancy system, we've we'll got new personnel methods, we will have, say, an international exam for people to come into the United Nations Secretariat he immediately bumps up to the G77 and other combinations of nations who say, no, we want to keep to the regional Buggins' turn, and we, if it's the Human Rights Commission, we claim that there should be seven African members on the Human Rights Commission. And the way we fix that is we just, we just rotate them in alphabetical order. And we, we do our local compromises there. So what's the chance of trying to make a real drive I mean, every every businessman who's gone in and looked at the UN organization and the personnel structure has just said, wow, this is no way to run a business I would get rid of two thirds of these bastards immediately but the point is, you you really are bound by the fact it's an intergovernmental contract. One final remark though uh because uh, I was asked a question pertaining to this uh, and pertaining to the human rights questions which came from over here. Uh, A few years ago, you may remember that uh, Libya held for six months the presidency of the Human Rights Council. And when I would open the Wall Street Journal, which I don't like opening, but because of my job I open it up, six days a week, when you'd open the Wall Street Journal, you'd see the letters of denunciation, you'd see congressmen and others just going on and on about what a travesty this is. And when you would gently point out to them that in 1944 and 1945, the United States government, like the other biggies, was only interested in what happened on the three big future post-war bodies, the World Bank, the IMF and the Security Council, and on all those three, if you look at the uh, at the constitution of the World Bank and the IMF, you see the five biggest guys have essentially a veto power on any World Bank loan. So you've got five, five, five. We've got what we want. Now you little guys can go off and play with all of the other parts of the UN organization and sure we don't mind regional distribution and sure we don't mind a, you know, a presidency rotating every, every six months because we don't think that's very important so the fact that somebody like Libya could come for six months onto and be president of the Human Rights Commission was not just because of what I regard as a flawed regional uh, selection system, in this case by the African states, so it happens with the uh, Asian states as well, it's also because essentially of the early collusion of the big three. We don't care about that stuff, so you, know, you can have you can put Trojan horses on there as far as we are concerned, so long as we've got our control on the World Bank, the IMF and the Security Council. Thank you.
0: We have had an evening of firsts. We've had the first event under the LSE Ideas banner. We've had the first lecture from the first Philippe Roman professor. And for me, it was the first time I've heard a professor from Yale refer positively to a piece of research from Harvard. So <laughs> this has been an evening of liberal thought. Um, and we're very grateful to you, Paul, for coming. Thank you.